It's really weird. Throwing is bizarre. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a bizarre form of magic. Um, that's actually the first time I've said that out loud. Welcome to episode one of Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. I'm Kate Hawes, and this is Clarity Haynes. In this episode, we visit the Brooklyn studio of Elizabeth Insonia, a visionary artist working with ideas of the divine feminine, mythology, and alternate spiritual worlds. Insonia has exhibited internationally with solo shows at Berlin's RAR Gallery and New York's Jeannie Freelich Gallery. She works with water-based media and uses bright fluorescent and metallic colors to embellish her dreamlike narratives. Spiritual ritual plays an important role in Elizabeth's practice. In the spirit of her studio process, we started off our interview with a ritual. So this, these are just symbols, you know, so candles, flowers, singing bowls, plants, rocks, smoke. But through imagination, if you use the symbols in a way that's positive, you can really um, cross the veil. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I'm just going to do a few rounds with the singing bowl, and this is for also protection. Okay. So generally when the sound is moving, it's a circular sound, which you'll hear, and if we can all just close our eyes and sort of imagine a really protective um, energy around us, that would be nice. By the light and the depth of the goddess, we are protected. You know, I've always had this this sense and this urge that the spirituality was one of the most important parts of the process of of art making. And if and if not to connect with that, you know, if you can't connect with that, then I really am not right. I'm not really right. interested. Yeah. <laughs> I, I before we came, I was doing some research, just thinking about other artists who have had this idea of spirituality mm-hmm. and spiritual process as their main conceptual underpinning of their work. Yeah. And, you know, just, I, I found this great article in Freeze about um, Hilma F. Klimt mm. and, and also kind of the history of the art world's response to spirituality and religion. And what did it say? Well, there was a show at LACMA in 1987 about the spiritual and abstraction in the 20th century. And then there was one in 1977 at like the Indianapolis Museum of Art that was also about kind of the spiritual and art. And as of the time that that article was written, there wasn't much else. It was written in 2010. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was kind of about how we're living in a secular age, you know. Mm-hmm. But art that really deals with spirituality, you know, obviously is not the dominant presence in the art world. Mm-hmm. Um, but there have been movements you know like the the symbolists and I guess what do they call them spiritualists I mean I was just thinking of all the people we were talking about this last night like what other artists do you relate to who have worked this way Mm -hmm. yeah I mean there are so many you know even you know in my early early 20s I I told you I worked at Dia Beacon and I spent so much time with Agnes Martin you know with her work and that is intensely spiritual. And I knew that. 
I also would argue that Louise Bourgeois, um, many of her works have that quality. But that I could see, and I also could see by reading all the material that was there, it's not something that they promoted. It wasn't advertised. It was sort of this underground, sort of unspoken thing. And that's been the case a lot. I think that it's probably, it really is a strong presence, but I think, I mean, now less so, but it's something that people tend to be sort of afraid of also socially, like if you're in New York, um, to speak about such things because it's easy to dismiss it Mm -hmm. or make fun of it or parody it. You know, which, you know, par- parodies are definitely fun, but. But it's sort of, I mean, but there were art movements like Hilma F. Klimt was involved with uh, five other women artists who were promoting, you know, the importance of the unconscious, mm-hmm. you know, Jungian thought, spiritual thought, and even the occult and alchemy and things like that, mm-hmm. which I see that you have, have done a lot of too, you know, in, in your involvements with people that are curators but also are interested in these and and sort of bring it all together yeah and that's really it's I think it's good to be presented that way and sort of in that in that in that realm because I would say for a long time even though I was making work that was of the spirit or of was related to other worlds and and even magic I don't think I would have said that out loud 10 years ago it just was I mean we we talked about this too like you're making divine the divine feminine and you're working with the divine feminine but it's just it's different than to finally have the freedom to say it out loud i recently just stayed home and read most of susan aberth's book on leonara carrington who um her work is extremely magical and some and symbolic and and um incredible and there's been a really resurgence of um focus on her which i think is really wonderful for, for all of us that are making work in a similar vein but I guess, yeah, my, my focus, and I know it's, it's really great that you're looking at, like, recent history, but I'm so just uh, enamored by prehistory at this point and just sort of where, where it's all come from and thinking about the cyclical nature of things and, you know, Plato's yeah. saying there's nothing new under the sun and that this is just sort of a repetition. Right. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. You really are you're not deriving inspiration from the surrealists or, I mean, no, directly yeah. or the symbolists. I like the, that I'm related. I mean, that's great yeah. to be related to something. Right. It sort of helps you. And then as you move on, you find your tribe. You, know, you find right. a little bit more of people that you can relate to and it gives you confidence to keep going. Right. And to keep making your work. Right. And like, I think your work is related to someone we both know, Loie Hollowell. Mm. I feel like your work, both of you guys are very kind of um, interested in the spiritual in your in your visual production, like directly. Yeah, and hers is you know in a primarily abstract way, but very very beautiful yeah, work. Yeah, and I think hers is more. Um, you know, it's I think having I haven't talked with her a while in a while, but you know more of an emotional orgasmic kind of way, mm-hmm. like tantric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a different sort of spiritual tradition that she's drawing from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like um, Indian tantra mm-hmm. paintings, which are incredible. But yeah, yours is, like, you are very much about imagery. Like, I see um, what looks like a bright fluorescent yellow. Is that a cheetah? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> carrying old skin. Car- carrying old skin in a forest. And I see lots of animals. There's a lot of snakes. There's some hawks, which I know your partner, Karen Hegel, also. Vultures. Vultures. Also um, 
does images of hawks. Yes. There's a lion, some kind of animal with antlers peeking out from behind a tree. Which Yeah, those um, are reindeer. That's like the subversion oh, of nature. So if you see oh. the reindeer is on top of the lion, because I think, you know, sometimes I think about this, like the that the the whole world order and the laws within the world are just wrong. And so I think about like what would happen if they were completely subverted. And that's what that painting is sort of working with. Does the reindeer symbolize something? Well, the you? reindeer, because, you know, I remember as a little kid, it's like deer, only male, only the boy deer have antlers. But the reindeer, the female deer, also have antlers. And they just, and they shed it at a different time and they grow them at a different time. So that was really important to know that. And also, you see a lot of um, ancient tattoos. You see that the reindeer, that, that famous reindeer on the uh, I forgot her. It was a Siberian. They call her the Siberian healer or shaman, and she had this kind of reindeer across her. You see those in the cave, in the caves. The reindeer. So I'm curious when you come in here, what your process is like. So I mean, it sounds like you do a lot of reading and you know drawing and preparatory thinking and then when you actually sit down or stand whatever it is to make a painting like do you have an idea of what you're about to paint like have you planned it out or are you working in this way of really not knowing I'm both yeah. because I think the mystery is really important um, sometimes I work with dream work if that happens although I really haven't had um, when I was doing the goddess speak project I had some really really amazing dreams um, and since then I really haven't gotten to that level with my dream work I also have I also stopped going to Jungian analysis I was in Jungian analysis for five years and that really mm. I had tons of dreams and it was lots of focus on dream work but I, I sort of quit in November and the dreams were reasons okay <laughs> You don't have to go into it. But yeah, the okay. dreams were often becoming paintings or subject well, matter that would get incorporated into a painting? Yeah. Like, yeah. so for example, with this one, which I made a smaller version of it, um, which was in a show in London two years ago, um, the Image show, curated by Robert Anzel. Anyway, in the dream, I met this man um, whose partner, um, he was a gay man, his, and his husband, who I didn't see. He, he and his husband, but his husband was not present, were explaining to me that the streams of power um, existed in the earth and that if I wanted to relate to them, that this was a way to do it through these streams. And then there was this painting behind his head and the painting turned into this forest with these streams, like these amazing white light streams in this beautiful forest. So I made the small version of it and I actually gave that to my twin brother recently because I had this thought that um, I had this epiphany that I had to give this to him and so I did but in the meantime I started this painting this year which it's maybe finished maybe a little bit more I'm, I'm really not sure I just I like work, working large but it also is so hard working large you know just it just takes so long Yeah, I love the collage. Yeah, I, yeah. I really like the layering of paper. Yeah, it was Gives fun it to do texture. that. It was fun to do that. And the texture happened uh, not by accident, but this paper was bequeathed to me, and it had little punctures in it. 
even though it's nice paper. And so I thought, oh no, how am I going to work with this? So I just started to build up layers out of necessity. And then I decided to sacrifice this work of a goddess that I made with little snake arms and I cut her up. And I have like a little snippet of her left, but I cut her up and I used her inside the streams. And that, that shape, that form that you're calling a stream, that you saw in the dream? Yes. So that's oh. sort of your own personal symbology in a way. I, I suppose just, it must be, yeah. yeah. So that's what I was, that's I guess that's partly what I was thinking about when I was co- comparing you in my mind to visionary artists who, mm. you know, cre- like create their own symbols that are personal to them. More yes. like Forrest Bess. Like yeah. Forrest Bess. His visions. I know. His, yeah. yeah. His visions are Right, and like to him they might mean something that to the viewer it might not. Yeah. Like I didn't read that as a stream. Mm-hmm. That's okay. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so mysterious. Yeah, it's definitely mysterious. We'll return to our conversation with Elizabeth and Sonia in a moment. You're listening to Magic Praxis, a podcast featuring studio art talks, hosted by Clarity Haynes and me, Kate Hawes. Please go to our website, magicpraxis.com, to see images of some of the artwork we're discussing. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, we talked about some of the art historical artists that I, I can see you in relation to, even, even if you don't necessarily derive inspiration from them. But I'm also curious, who now do you feel most aligned with? Maybe you could talk about whose work you think most relates to yours and or just other artists that you may know and feel really inspired by, even if it doesn't seem like, even if it's surprising? Yeah. Let's see. My wife's work, I mean, like, that really relates. You know, we're, we're very connected, and the, the dialogue moves back and forth quite fluidly, so that's, I mean, she's a large inspiration. I mean, I did, like, I, I did a series of vulture paintings before, um... I don't know, in 2005, but it, they were more like, <laughs> they were like a series of vultures and then vultures eating the phallus and sort of like, it was like the end of the patriarchy and like totally like fuck the patriarchy and like fuck, you know, just all of that, whatever it represents, which I do not like and I get angry about. But she really took it to another level and like the vulture is the goddess. Mm. Um, the vulture is related to many different goddesses symbolically, Isis being one. And um, there's so many vultures within pieces that you find from ancient civilization, the claws of the Ishtar. You know, all these, they, it's so the goddess becomes part of the vulture. And the vulture, if you look, is this really majestic being. So that, that came back to my work through that. That's a direct relation, but people that I admire, I mean, I don't know, recently... Or lately been thinking about Carolyn Chandler's work and just how action-oriented it is and that, you know, and you know this, I mean, in person, it's, it's not a theory that it exists, that it's love. I mean, there, there, it is the heart chakra. You feel it in his work. It's, um, it encompasses that kind of energy. And I think that kind of energetic action is that that's what it's about like how do you get there and your work has that as well um jesse bransford i you know i've been thinking about his work i had an incredible studio visit with him a few months ago and i feel like it was a really great exchange 
and he works with like really three-dimensional spell spellcraft and like he has a really other way that he's related to this um, and his work I mean it's incredibly charged in person I mean you feel whatever he rituals that he's worked with with the piece you feel it in the work and that is when the action is real like that is something that's happening it's working in this world um, you know in, in David Shaw I don't know if you know David Shaw David Shaw is a sculptor who's I admire a lot and in his work he did, um, he was like one of the last shows um, at Feature, and he it was called Eat Out, I think, and it was all this glass work and tables, and it was related to the goddess and the divine feminine. It was a conversation. He told me it was a conversation between him and the divine feminine. And Jesse did a spell in the front of um, water and salt, and I believe, in, and David's life changed drastically after this, and I think it was all related um, you know, it was all, it's, you know, spells don't just work like on their own, like, oh, let's just do a spell. It sort of has to be related to all these different forces and lining up with things. And that's why you think about planetary shifts and everything else. It's a lot more complicated than just um, one conscious person saying, I want this or I want that. Um, so that's someone. And I mean, I think there are just so many people. I mean, it's any anyone that I've had um, a deep conversation with, I would say is, um, influences me in some way, and there are so many incredible people out there that are working in different ways. I think for the most part, I'm mostly inspired by people who are doing uh, sincere things. It's a sincere work, sort of not strictly based on theory, but something that's sincerely happening within themselves. I find myself mostly attracted to that, or I would say all attracted to that. There's never a work that's like, says it's one thing, but is another, or yeah. Um, I do think that the predominant discourse um, in the art world today centers around theory mm -hmm. and sort of an intellectual conceptual basis. So, and I know that you really think of your work as, as coming out of intuition. Mm -hmm. um, and has it always been that way? Have, or has it been something you've kind of grown into? Yeah, um, well, I've definitely grown into it, but it's also been very familiar and it's been something that's been a part of my work for as long as I can remember. I mean, working within this way, although it's had different expressions. Um, I think reading uh, Memories, Dreams, Reflections by Carl Jung in a very... I don't know, or I think it was in my early 20s, that really solidified a lot of things that I wanted to work with, which was moving down the realms of the unconscious, which is what he did and what he spoke about within that book, and gaining imagery by speaking with these different forces and archetypes, you know, within, I mean, archetypes as he calls it, within the, within, within the unconscious mind. And so I think um, that roughly becomes a kind of spiritual discourse because we are spiritual beings and um, it's just the, my main source of interest although as I said to you in my early 20s I felt really kind of embarrassed about this like it wasn't something I should really paint about like I should really you know there's these ideas that come into your mind right about like how you should be painting how you should like really be thinking, I, I always got this sense, like people would always ask like, well, who are your influences? Like, like it had to be some particular artist from like the 1970s, you know, like, a, like, like 
like you just had a, you know, be coming from that lineage. And if you weren't, then you really couldn't be part of the dialogue. And like, you really like, just should like, I don't know, go paint in a corner somewhere and just like forget about the whole thing. Um, but then you start to realize that that's not the way it should work. Like you should be making your paintings. And then if something is part of that conversation, then you're naturally interested in it. And then like you maybe knowing about this or in conversation with this other artist or thing or past artist or object, then, then that's where the juicy stuff comes in. Cause that's where it's actually real. How has, um, I mean, this might be, be something you want to be off the record. I don't know, let me know if so. Okay. How, how has kind of coming out influenced your, your work? Oh, I think it influenced it a lot. Because so going into Jungian analysis and after like many years of it, it's like I realized, okay, I need to be with a woman. I need, um, I need, I need that. Like I need to have, um, you know, a wife. Or at the time, I don't know if that was, could be legal, but, or yeah, could. But anyway, I need this as my partner. I knew it. And um, that was really, really hard. But I feel like because of that, it allowed all this stuff to be free and to come out and to be okay. And I feel like I still, it's like an endless process of coming out because I think, I mean, look at the climate that we live in today. I mean, it could easily just go back to some awful state. It's a constant thing that needs to be protected. Um, and... Um, I feel like it allowed me to just really move into the work in a magical way. I mean, for me, sort of being who I am and sort of, again, going into that lesbian space, um, it has been incredible to work with that and have that interact with the work because I feel like that um, was able to then unveil further and move further into the imagery. Um, the images of, of orgasms, you know, I don't know if you see, <laughs> maybe this is getting like a little bit intense. Are but. you painting orgasms? Is this tantric? No, I wouldn't say this is tantric. It just some visions that happen within that happen to happen, but there are yeah. certain elements that have come up, um, during these, during visions of ecstasy. And that's really a part in, an important part of it. Um, I feel like I guess I, not that I was hiding it before, but I feel like that's not something I really want to tell everyone. I mean, maybe it's okay for the nature of this podcast because it's sort of like I'm just talking to you and then it just kind of moves out into whoever <laughs> listens to it. Um, but yeah, so I mean, but that's a way in let's like where, where, where are these images created? Like that's like such an intense moment mm -hmm. and then it comes out of seemingly nowhere and it's sort of like the same idea of... Um, any of other ways of interacting with the unconscious, but it's, but it's erotic. So that's, that makes it another, it's another special way, another special place. So that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I see that as a presence in our, you know, Christianity, you know, invented a duality of um, the spiritual versus the sexual, mm -hmm. the body versus the mind. Right, a lot of and, and so there's, there's, you know, but of course the pagan-based traditions that you and I both ascribe to um, very much are about the sexual as part of the spiritual, the body as in the earth as, as mm. an, a, an expression of the divine. Yeah, that's, that's really important to make that point. 
the goddess space and it it feels like a queer space. Those feel together. Like it is this alternative space and it's alternative to what? To all the other values that um, it does not hold. And um, I think, I mean, I'm finding that more and more queer artists are working within this spectrum of, you know, other dimensions and magic. And I personally relate with that through the divine feminine. So it's like a tunnel, like through the divine feminine to a queer space and back. Um, but that's, that's my personal relationship with it. Interesting. That's interesting. Cause I know that like coming out, you know, is something that unless you're raised by gay parents, most people have to come out and kind of, you know, be reborn in a sense or mm-hmm. find a family, a new family, or recreate themselves and, and find this whole new world that they didn't really weren't a part of before. It's a whole new culture. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think I can relate to that um, experience of thinking of a queer space as an al- alternate space. And, it, and even though um, the work for me remains largely underneath or over or around language it's not really sort of within it although sometimes I guess it is um I love the word queer I think it just does so much it's done so much for us although there's been all these articles like if everyone's queer what is queer (laughs) because I guess it's like the it's the now word what do you love about it that, that it represents this alternative magical space. And I know that it's been used that way and it, it feels like it should be used that way. It feels like it should be a way to access something like a spell, like, like to access um, the places that you need to go through this word uh, instead of when you're in school or when you're working and you thinking that, you know, the language of the time is the only language that exists. And so you're sort of oppressed by this language, oppressed by like heterosexuality, oppressed by the binary. And then when you find this other word, you're like, oh, that's it. That's what I've been trying to move through. Because it's a through word. It's like a, it's like a dia, a through Yeah, so I'm looking at these um, small square panels, mm-hmm. paintings, and um, they're, you know, there's like, they're like, I don't know exactly, like three or four inches square, and um, on there's a vertical um, line of them hanging on the wall, and then it's really cool. You put um, a little small ceramic piece on top of the panel, each panel on the ledge on the top. Mm-hmm. One is a snake, one is a bust of sorts. One looks like a strange little animal, a little mysterious, mischievous animal. Mm-hmm. They're white with like some blue paint, uh, glaze on them. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love that. I really love the idea of adding an object on top of a painting, which I think is very, like I don't see a lot of that. And I'm just wondering how you arrived at that sort of form. Sure, yeah. I mean, I was happy to um, have the chance to experiment with this kind of project. Um, It was for a particular project 
um, that unfortunately didn't happen, but it forced me to think in this sort of way of what would I do with a ceramic object and um, and a painting. And I love that it's it's part altar, like there is an altruistic kind of quality about it. And so yeah, right now it's really in the beginning of stages of thinking about painting in that way and sort of a sculpture as, as an extension. I'm, I've, been, I've been working with ceramics for the past couple of years because I don't know if you both of you know that I work as a ceramic technician for my day job and I also teach up there um, ceramics and drawing. So I've, at lunch, I kind of make these little things, but I've never really put it in a serious context, like with my work before, but it sort of naturally started coming together, especially looking at a lot of the imagery and a lot of the little sculptures that have been unearthed by Gimbutis or other um, people that have been working with ancient forms. And this is something that it will last there's some there's there's an eternal quality. There's there mm -hmm. are many many more examples of fragments of pottery or sculptures that exist than painting. The painted parts of things besides cave paintings and besides the last 500 years gone. Paintings don't last that long. Right. But sculptures do and little ceramic bits do. So I think that's probably why there's been a resurgence of ceramics like unconsciously I think people are realizing in the contemporary art world Yes, I think so. There's well, there's just been a fad of people working with ceramics, and, and I think I'm, it's because it is has this like permanence to I it. I think that it's a it's a reaction mm. against the impermanence of many of the mediums that we work with. I mean, if you look at like Eva Hesse, I mean, her work is completely deteriorating. Many of our works will completely deteriorate. I mean, I'm working with acrylic, and many of these um, paints, I know. I mean, part, like so, the orange there, that bright orange, that is a. Um, a color that has a light fastness of pore. I didn't even know right. that when I bought yeah. it. But this, I mean, yeah, it lasts, it's fine here because we don't have window, or I don't have windows here. But if it was subject to direct sunlight, it would disappear within a month. Are so you that's serious? part of my process. Yeah. Like, I know yeah. that this will disappear, yeah. or part of it will disappear. Right. Yeah. But so, now that we're talking about the ceramics, I'm thinking about because so much of your work is symbolic and, you know, the, the, the elemental qualities of the material itself, like the earth, basically, right? You think about that when you're adding it, that to a painting, which is like more, I don't know, light and air or, you know, I don't know. Do you think about the mixing of elements? Yeah, like, that's something that I'm really just beginning to think about. I can tell you that because not only do I make objects, but I, I am um, an amateur potter. I just I make lots mm. of pottery in my lunch break. And so a lot of these little vases that you see everywhere holding the flowers are um, thing, pots that I've, that I've made. And that aspect of the throwing, it's so meditative, but you kind of, really cool. it's like spinning. Like you, you're, I feel like I sometimes enter into like other realities. Like all of a sudden I'm, I'm um I'm another person doing something else. It's like it almost like it, it induces visions. Like I'm I'm throwing and all of a sudden I'm like somebody else in like a different time and all of a sudden I think I'm that person for a second and then I stop. It's really weird. Throwing is bizarre. Yeah, yeah. It's a bizarre form of magic. Um, that's actually the first time I've said that out loud. But yeah, so that and that also doesn't feel like art to me, you know, because it's pottery and pottery is that hmm. thing that like is forgotten. Mm -hmm. A lot, like you see pots and it's sort of, oh, it's a pot. But there's a lot of art that is ceramic, especially these days. Yeah, but I still think the idea of a vessel is under... A utilitarian. Undervalued. Oh, because oh. it's it's a vessel. 
But right. if you, but now people are, are, you know, like Elizabeth Clay, like she's work, she's having a dialogue with that, and she's done, she's been working in that in that realm for you know many 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 years. Um, so she's taking it to another level. But I think a straight up vessel, it's a vessel. Sure. It's just something you don't look. You know, it's something that is maybe transporting something else, or yeah, yeah, yeah. it's something in between. It's not something that it you has take. a use. It has a use. Yeah. But the the ceramics that you're incorporating into your work your are not art, that. Yes, that's are true. Are not vessels <laughs> actually. They're mm. like more in line with what the subjects of your paintings are. They're sort of sure. mythological or based on more of the same source material that you're sure. looking at. And they're kind of mushy and they're a little vague actually, which I like. Like they're not clearly defined and sculpted. They're not like I'm not seeing like detailed beaks and claws and tails. No. no they're really <laughs> they're a little just, ambiguous. They're super ambiguous. And mushy, which I love. Mushy. Mushy. This episode of Magic Praxis was mixed by John Bender, who also does our music. Sign up for future episodes on iTunes or at magicpraxis.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>